Hello everyone and welcome to Sounds from the Studio. The contemporary craft fosters the use of traditional craft materials such as ceramic, fiber, glass, metal, and wood to make art. Our community honors the history and heritage of craft while showcasing modern exploratory work. Since our gallery is located in Pittsburgh, PA, we decided to bring the stories of some of our exhibiting and studio artists to a broader audience by way of this podcast. I'm Rachel Rierick, the Executive Director here at Contemporary Craft. And I'm Camila Adams, podcast producer and art enthusiast. We will be your hosts for this journey. There are lots of ways to keep up with us. You can follow the Facebook page, Contemporary Craft. You can go on Twitter at SCCPGH or also on Instagram at SCCPGH. Or you can just go straight to the website, ContemporaryCraft.org. And as for the podcast, you can find it just about wherever you get your podcasts. Just please follow, rate, and review, and share, 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 so more people can enjoy the, the discussions that we will be getting into this year. So the current exhibition at Contemporary Craft is the Fiber Art International 2022, which is recognized around the world as a benchmark showcase that also documents trends and innovations in the field. The goal of the exhibition is to include innovative work that's rooted in traditional fiber materials, structure, processes, and history, as well as art that explores unexpected relationships between fiber and other disciplines. The Fiber Art International is produced by the Fiber Arts Guild of Pittsburgh and it's shared between us here at Contemporary Craft and another regional gallery. And this year's exhibition marks the 24th in the series. So now it's time to get to know our guests. Akiko Kotani, welcome to Sounds of the Studio. It's a pleasure for me to meet you sort of like today. And um, how are you doing today? How are things? I'm, I'm fine today. Uh, I had a good night's rest, so I'm ready for your question. <laughs> it's absolutely important. <laughs> I'm glad you got a good night's rest because <laughs> we're going to dig in deep today. That's that's the goal. As deep as we can get in 60 minutes. <laughs> we are very excited to talk with you for our first podcast. So thank you for taking your time to do this. Um, your work is currently with us as part of the Fiber Art International, and the work is absolutely incredible. I can't wait to hear more about it. And for listeners, I want to quickly describe the piece since they're not seeing it with us. It's a large installation piece that towers in the corner of our gallery. It's made from a red plastic material that, um, Akiko, you can talk a bit more about, which has been uh, crocheted. And uh, really, I guess, why don't you go ahead and talk to us about the work and tell us, I'm very curious, what actually inspired that work? Uh, I'd be very happy to share that information with you. Um, the title of the work, as you said, is Red Falls. And, um, you know, it, I, I can talk about this uh, in many different ways uh, because I, your audience will probably be craftspeople, fine arts people, and very much interested people in the arts. Um, and so uh, the, I can talk about the work in terms of um, the methods used, the materials, and also uh, the way I was inspired by it and the concept behind it. All of these three areas, um, you know, all come together in a work of art and uh, expresses itself to, to uh, the public. So Red Falls is uh, obviously the color red, 
and immediately signals um, issues, women's issues. Traditionally, in <clears throat> literature, music, uh, opera, what have you, if there is red involved, it signals immediately women's issues. And this is no different. My work, uh, and also made from uh, plastic material, and it really is um, garbage bags. And uh, I would say that I did not choose gar garbage bags uh, for the purpose of having the concept come with it, but it sort of flowed together. But in doing that, in doing this uh, work, I realized that uh, garbage bags are not valued. And women's work in the home also is not valued. And so I thought it was a very, 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 uh, you know, uh, interesting and compelling uh, reason to use this particular material. Also, the technique that I use is crochet. Crochet has always been uh, associated with woman's work, in quote. And a uh, woman's work was also not valued. And so this all seemed to flow very nicely into uh, the resulting work. I wanted the work to be large, and large it is. When it was first shown, it was 12 feet high, and for contemporary craft, Rachel, I, uh, it, because of the height of your ceilings, it was reconfigured for 10 feet tall, and all of the other resulting um, dimensions were adjusted for the particular space. Now, insulation work is very important because you have to consider the space that it is going to exist in. One of my earliest concepts that I worked with in graduate school was that the space is really one of the most important aspects of art. And the art itself, the object itself, is really like a punctuation point within the space. So you can imagine how important I feel the uh, object is in the total space. This is one of the most important aspects of my work that I think very uh, is not is not paid enough attention by artists, much less craftspeople. So that is the material that I use, and I've also explained. Uh, the, the method of crochet, both of these are, so to speak, undervalued. Akiko, can I ask you a quick yes, question? Please um, <laughs> Building off of that, um, <laughs> when you say it's the red, it comes from trash bags, I'm really curious, is that, um, like when I think of red on trash bags, I'm thinking of the part that actually ties and closes the bag. Is it that component or is it like a biodegradable kind of a hospital grade trash bag? Exactly. It is. It's a two mil thick um, uh, trash bag that is used for uh, hospitals. And okay. that, is, that is, I found a manufacturer that uh, produces these in bulk. I buy them, I obviously need a lot of, yeah. a lot of material. And what I do is I, um, I cut it in strips and then I 
uh, you know, one linear element for crochet. And then I attach uh, these strips together to make one continuous hole. My goodness, how long does this process take you? Yes, uh, it, it's a very long process and also a very good segue to the next concept. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because um, doing crochet is laborious and it is constant. And to produce a work of this scale, um, I have to do it for a long period of time. Now, this repetitive work is also signaling women's work in the home. Oh, God, Women's yes. work in the home <laughs> is repetitive. Amen. And can I, can the church say amen? <laughs> repetitive and constant. And without this care and love of this repetitive work in the home, a home cannot function. Think about it. If you don't constantly clean, cook, do the laundry, your home would not function. And it is also undervalued. So do you see all of these, all aspects of the work really flows to the, the main idea that I am trying to, um, you know, come forth with. Um, and please just jump in and ask me any questions because- This isn't a question, know, just a comment. I like you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, you have a new fan. <laughs> I have been a fangirl a little bit about you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so, so I talked about the, the material, the method, and now if you want to hear about the concept, yes. I certainly can tell you a little bit about that. Absolutely. I mean, I have already, you know, I've already attached a great deal of um, ideas for the way I work, um, but I really feel at this time in our history, it is crucial that we emphasize the importance of women's work. Um, and of course, red signaling women, it is not, you know, uh, lost to us that it signals menstruation. And it is also, um, you know, signals uh, the one power that women have and that is procreation. We have the power to make life. And this is a power that men do not have. And so I really feel very strongly that this longing, this longing that men have of not being able to have the ultimate power of giving life is the basis of a tremendous amount of pain that women have to go through. Um, in other words, I remember a time, well, it still exists today in art. Males really still have the power in all aspects of fine art or crafts. Um, and it's because I believe they have such a longing to say, you know, women, you have the ultimate power. You give life, so give us something. Our area <laughs> is 
to be powerful in art, to be powerful in politics. That's where we can have our power. And now in the United States, we are even facing, they're not giving us choice. I mean, the ultimate area for every individual in the entire world, not giving us the choice to choose what we want to do with our bodies. That is very intrusive. So this, this uh, work as I, you know, spent, as you said, long, long hours uh, doing it, um, made me think about all of these things. You know, it's really interesting to hear all of that concept that's behind this piece because um, it it just takes such a presence in our gallery. It, I mean, it demands you to see it, to look at it, to think about it, to process it. You can't not be engaged with this work. Um, and hearing so much ab- about your concept and that it's about women's work, uh, and, and the body and the power and all of those things. To me, there's also like another layer of that, even just in the discussions that we continually have about craft and functionality versus aesthetic. And, you know, of course, we all know that craft originates from many times like women's work and it originates from the home and from the functionality of things. But you and your own right are just like an incredibly accomplished and recognized abstract artist. So it's kind of, in my mind, a little bit symbolic of this marriage and representation of also the functionality and the origin and then the marriage to the fine art and how craft and art kind of have this relationship with one another. So um, thank you so much for sharing all of that. It's just like so much rich content that I think the viewer needs to understand when they're looking at that work. Thank you for that. And of course, you know, you have somewhere in your questions about craft and art. And um, I was, uh, just to give you some background, I was trained, I have my BFA in painting and also a minor in art history. So it is really a rather traditional uh, background. And my, my, the basis of my training really is in fine arts. And that I uh, took, uh, that I began to see my images in soft materials. And that is the reason why I started to do my work with um, soft materials in weaving, first of all, and then um, in the last, I would say, five, ten years, I've started to work with uh, the most elemental of uh, stitchings, and that is the crochet stitch, the single crochet stitch. Um, I, I was, I'm always very fascinated with uh, what I call prima materia, especially expressed for women. And so anything that I, any area I notice, I notice the way that I work, um, I go to the most essential uh, technique. I go to the simplest technique. I go to the simplest method uh, to express my work. And in this way, I think that it is, you know, it, it again adds another layer of really um, celebrating what craft is and yet imbuing it with 
layers and layers and layers of what we call fine art or aesthetics. Aesthetics is really very, very important to me. Well, what do you find more? Is that more... question? <laughs> I'm sorry. What, what do you find more compelling, the materials that you use or your process? I think they all come together in a, a sort of a elegant way. I, I like to say that. <laughs> I hope it does anyway. <laughs> you know, they sort of all flow together and it's like a lovely marriage of, um, you know, technique and material and concepts. And uh, I believe one of the reasons I like being my age is because it took a very long time to get here. Mm. I think that uh, craftspeople, artists, whatever area they're working in, you know, it takes a maturity, it takes a very long time to have everything mesh and, you know, uh, come together into one. And many people, you know, they sort of wander off in different areas and, and don't, you know, continue their work. But um, some of us that are, you know, doggedly, we can't do anything else. <laughs> you know, we come to this point. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's really beautifully said. I really appreciate that. Um, if we can change direction, but in a way, kind of in the same vein, uh, I read the essay that you shared by Rang, Rang Suk Yuk. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Please Rang correct me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Um, who's the curator of modern art at the Baker Museum. So yes. she's exploring many aspects of identity and more specifically cultural identity that is hyphenated. So it's fascinating for me to learn more about your name and how you came to the components of your practice throughout reading that piece. And at the conclusion of her writing, she suggests that your identity as a Japanese American is integral to your work as an artist. And I'm curious how you feel about that and if it resonates with you in a way that you believe your heritage is interwoven within your work as well. Oh, definitely. Um, I, um, uh, I was born in Hawaii, and uh, my grandparents came to Hawaii as laborers, and I would say very close to being slaves. Um, And they really had a very difficult time. My mother is second generation, and it is, you know, it was her influence on me that education was absolutely necessary. She gave me a first name of Laura because she wanted me to, you know, uh, integrate myself into uh, the current uh, society that I would be growing up in. And as I became very serious with my artwork, I felt more like my middle name, Akiko, than I did with Laura. And so I, I adopted, I took that on as my name. Now my, uh, my art uh, second name, Kotani, is a married name from my first marriage. Why did I take the name Akiko Kotani as my professional, so to speak, name? Frankly, because I think it really looks, it sounds and it looks very good. And I, that was a very I agree. conscious, 
That was a very conscious decision on my part. It's also very strong. I mean, I, I like, and I just may be biased because I like K sounds, Camila. But um, yeah, I, I just like the, it's a hard and strong sound uh, for me from why, where I hear it. It's, um, but also just real quick, what does, what is the meaning of Akiko? The, the meaning of Akiko is, um, it's the symbol of my name is sun and moon together. It's a very strong name. Yeah. It gave me a very, very strong name because it is the sun and the moon together. It is not separate. So it's a, it's, it's a light giving body and a light absorbing body. That's how I think about my name. That's amazing. And it's a very powerful, I think it's a very powerful name. Yeah, I love it. Like, I hope, Absolutely. hopefully you have a gold plate, like necklace with it on there, man. Like, cause I mean, <laughs> dude, that's, that's a hard name, Akiko. <laughs> So yeah, so um, more about how your your Japanese American heritage and identity like kind of just works with you as an artist. Right. So um, I was born in a Buddhist family, and I think like many of us in America, especially we, I'm third generation, so I'm not quite, you know, that second generation which feels a great deal of identity issues. But my mother wants me not to feel that. She wanted me to integrate into society and have an easier time, so to speak. However, uh, the Buddhist in me is extremely strong. I find very naturally, you know, um, going back to concepts of my Buddhism and in my art also, I began to uh, realize things such as the the economy of means, the uh, sparseness that is uh, in my work, the essential nature of things. I mean, all of, all of the things that I sort of think that I've come up with in the end, it really was theirs from the beginning because <laughs> of my Buddhist heritage. Right. <laughs> and so I think, that, I think that it is really important. And Rensu really saw that, um, you know, in my, uh, myself and in, in my work. And I must say that she, you know, really, uh, you know, made me see that in a very new way. So, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the distinction between art and craft. Um, for yourself, do you see that there's a line between the two and within your own practice? Is there any distinction for you? Not at all. Not once until <laughs> Well, I love that. I mean, because, of course, here at Contemporary Craft, we, we believe that it's, you know, contemporary art that's made from traditional craft material or process. So... I'm I'm on that team with you, right <laughs> but it's always an interesting conversation to have with people. Yes, and and I will say that because it may it may be because of my training in painting that I've never seen craft 
as being other than art, fine art. It comes from the hand, it comes from the heart, it comes from materials that is handcrafted, and so is painting. Um, it's just that painting, I believe, has a longer history. Um, and of course, I also studied art history, so I have that, uh, you know, to uh, sort of think think about and and to uh, you know give my my perspective, but um, I have always felt that uh, the self consciousness of craftspeople today will eventually disappear because it is no difference between um, you know fine art and craft. Yeah, I absolutely. Um, I love that it seems like society and culture is becoming more accepting of the materiality of the field, and we're seeing more and more work in the mainstream that's made from you know our materials, and that that distinction does seem to be slowly dissipating for sure. Um, I, I'm curious though, what what drew you to soft materials as a painter? Like, what was it that you said, hmm? I think a different material is going to express, you know, my concept and how, how did you come to that answer it as a soft material? Um, it comes from my mother always having, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, something on her lap. She always <laughs> did crocheting, knitting, and um, it was, for me growing up, it was just a natural part of the whole, like the furniture, you know, in the house. Mm -hmm. My mother sitting there always doing, um, you know, something with her hands to, mainly to comfort, you know, the people around her, making objects to comfort, sweaters, throws, you know, uh, you name it. It was always that. And so for me, it was nothing new to, to, to see that. As I um, went through, you know, my training as a painter, and I began to uh, study more, I was in New York City. I lived in Soho for, oh, I must say, about ten years when it was still virgin. It was still. Um, I lived in uh, Tribeca before it was even named Tribeca. That's how early on I was there. <laughs> And, and uh, then I uh, took a weaving class, and something about it really, really did something to me. I, I, at the time, obviously, I didn't think about my mother. It was just that it was immediate that something, you know, rang a bell in me. And so uh, I decided to uh, go to Guatemala and to study uh, weaving, traditional weaving with uh, the indigenous Guatemalans. Um, so I was, I lived there for two and a half years and I studied their traditional weaving. It was a seminal event for me because I came back to the United States after that and I decided to get serious and grow up and to go and get my MFA. Uh, I did uh, my MFA in textiles and what I wanted to do was to, to share with my students when I started to teach 
um, the importance of a traditional um, uh, way of approaching uh, weaving. That it isn't only weaving to learn all your stitches and what have you, but there is really a tradition behind it, a culture behind it. The symbols uh, all mean something, and they all are in Guatemala. They were all handed down, generation after generation. And you could even see the influence when the Europeans came, the European designs started to appear on their garments. <clears throat> and in my own work, I wanted to have that as a very basic uh, uh, groundwork to start with, <clears throat> but to have contemporary ideas using that background. So essentially, like, yeah, it's, so, so this whole, the soft materials and what it is you've chosen to do with them is all just kind of like second nature and it's right there and it just has this little bit of, you know, uh, a, a reminder, a scent of home kind of thing and your mother in which I feel like it's a beautiful way to uh, to honor her and her spirit and what she means to you and what she meant to you and what she continues to mean to you. Right, exactly. It's interesting for me working in the field of craft. I think um, it's one of my favorite things about this field is that I the more that I talk to artists, um, surround myself with craft artists, you know, spend time in the community, it's a kind of continual thread that there's this lineage of some sort because the material has such accessibility right. that most people who are really, as you kind of said earlier, making this their life and really have dedicated themselves to their practice, a lot of times um, it's so interesting to kind of hear that origin story of how they came to know that material and hear that many times there's something in their family lineage or their you know, life experience or practice that um, you didn't necessarily realize that it was going to be a part of your life, but you can hearken back to a family member, a relative, someone close to you that was using that material. And many times in a very, very different way, but it's just intrinsically followed along with you. So mm -hmm. I, I really love that that is part of your story. It, it, it really reckons, I think, with a lot of people. And it makes everything so much more deeper. Like there's so much more meaning to it's to everything that you that you do. I mean, it's not not to say. I mean, you already have you gave a pretty heavy load with uh, what your your what is it the red? I'm sorry. What was red falls? Red falls. That was deep. Um, but it was it's amazing. There's a lot to unpack with where that's concerned. But it's just like, you know, I love the little bit of like person, a little more personality that gets thrown in there. And it's just like, you know, way back when, you know, my mom used these materials, these types of materials to comfort and to to give to show love. And these, this was part of her love language. And that's just a beautiful thing to know as well. When did you decide you were an artist? Um. I never thought of myself not being an artist. It wasn't the moment that went ding, you know, and then something, a bell rang and said, oh, I'm an artist. I grew up being an artist. I, I just never did think of myself not doing art, not doing something with my hands. Um, 
And so uh, uh, it was never a ding moment for me. I was, I always felt that I was an artist. And of course, in my, uh, you know, studies growing up, I, um, I have a severe learning disability. Hmm. And oh, so. uh, I can't, I can't write, I can't, um, uh, well, I can write now, but uh, after much practice, in a, after being, I don't know how I became a professor, in other words. Oh, you know, gotcha. but it, it's because It's because I am, I work, I compensate and I work overtime in doing things I cannot do. But art was always 10%, easy, easy. And 90%, I have to struggle with everything else that I've ever done in my life. Akiko, have you had any um, mentors? And if so, what what was it about them that you related to? You know, that was a really interesting question. And um, I'm, I'm going to say that uh, I've had two really very strong women uh, as mentors, and you will know the names. It was Toshiko Takaesu and Lenore Tani. Mm, yeah. Both of them are, you know, leaders in their field. Uh, Rachel, you know this. Um, and um, how I, now it's difficult. I've had this question before about mentors, and I really never mentioned their names because they weren't mentors in the traditional sense in that they were make perhaps a teacher, you know? They were more uh, friends. Toshiko was already, and Lenore obviously, they were really, really well known in their field. And uh, when I started my MFA, I did that very late in life, in my 30s. Um, Toshiko helped me decide, you know, after I went to um, Guatemala and I wanted to pursue, as I said, grow up and start to, uh, to teach and have an MFA, uh, I used to go to Toshiko's home, um, be- I call it between gigs, in other words, I would go off somewhere or do something, and then in between the two things, I would stay with her for a summer or for two weeks or what have you. And she was also from Hawaii, and I believe, you know, that's one of the strong links that we both have. And so she always opened her home to me to have a bed whenever I needed it. She was just that kind of a person. So... That's really how I, I how I, um, you know, got to know her, and I was mainly her driver. I used to drive her all over the place, um, and one of her very close friends was Lenore Tani. So at one time she took in Lenore, and uh, in between one, but Lenore Tani's gigs is a little bit larger than mine. I can tell you for sure. It was really between two, um, you know. A, a Soho uh, loss that she, you know, lived in, and she needed a place to live, and so Toshiko would, you know, say, "Oh, yeah, then come and stay upstairs." So many times, the three of us would be traveling together, and I will tell you, in retrospect, it was just incredible, incredible for me 
to have exposure at that level with these two women, two extremely strong and talented women, and who really trusted me enough to, you know, have me along with them. And I don't think that I've ever mentioned their name before because, um, you know, you you if you're if you have friends, you won't talk about them professionally. And that's how I always felt. But I think that it's important to say this because what I learned from them, the way they lived, the way they made their decisions, the way they talked about their careers, about their struggles and their pain also, it's, ju it's just invaluable. And so I would say that these two women really have tremendous influence on me. Yeah, that I mean, when you, <laughs> Rachel. absolutely. And when you talk about them, I, you know, I can definitely see the influence or the some comparison between you and the work of Lenore Tani. I mean, I think about, um, you know, the the drawings and the assemblages, the installation work, and as you're talking about being a painter as well as working in the soft uh, materials, but even um, I'm trying to think of the name. It's like Lost, Lost and Proud, maybe is a work by Lenore Tawney. Um and I don't know why, but something about it uh, makes me think of your work that we were just talking about the other day at the airport, the strip mines, and just like again using kind of that drawing or that painting process through thread and fiber. So. It's, it's fascinating, yeah, to hear you list that Lenore Tawney is one of your influences or mentors, because I can definitely see very different work, but at the same time, where that influence may have come from. And both of them, their aesthetic sensibility was just over the top. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they, never, <clears throat> they never sacrificed anything in their life for their art. Art was number one for them. Right on. Phenomenal. <laughs> so of all the work that you've done to date, what has been the most compelling for you? Or can you not pick a favorite? Is it like picking yeah, a favorite child? Yeah, I was thinking about that question. I had that posted uh, for me. Um, and my first instinct is this, to say that it's the work that I'm, you know, doing right now or the next work. But I would say that a very important work was Soft Walls which uh, is the first uh, installation I did with crochet plastic in all white. And it came together because of a very generous grant that I got from uh, the Pittsburgh Foundation and uh, uh, the Google, not, uh, the Pittsburgh and Heinz, the Heinz Endowment. They both have this creative um, creative grant, I, I forget the name of it right now, but it, is, it still exists. <clears throat> and I remember the first um, time that this was offered, we all gathered in the Warhol Museum's uh, uh, auditorium, and I think the, the auditorium holds 250 uh, seats. And it was standing room only. All the artists were there for this particular big grant that um, 
was to do work that you've never done before. And I thought, boy, does that speak to me? Because I wanted to do work that didn't have to be, I didn't have to think that I have to sell it. I didn't think, it was just totally for an image that I longed to do for a long, long time. And so, you know, I was sitting in that auditorium and I thought, geez, you know, look at all these people. <laughs> I don't have a chance. I mean, I was also old at the time and I thought, all these young artists, you know, all <laughs> these young artists with these really neat ideas <laughs> and, and um, you know, dance dancers and video people. In other words, you know, just the, the most cutting edge uh, artists were there. But I got a grant. I mean, you know, and so this tells tells you right. if you're an artist, you gotta go for it. Yeah, you gotta shoot your shot. You never, you never know. <laughs> right. You just have to, you know, you have to, you know, rev up your courage and just go for it. Exactly. And not think about the consequences. And so from that point on, you know, I I've always had that attitude. I mean, it just so that's is, it. is soft walls as snuggly as it looks? Or am I just, is, is that just, uh, because I'm looking at photos of it on your yes. website now. And it, it is. Yes, and it is, it is huge. It's 18 feet by 8 feet tall and 13 feet by 8 feet tall. These two walls juxtapose, you know, one on the other. And it just so happens that um, I was also awarded the, Pittsburgh Artist of the Year in 2013. Oh. And so um, I, in my proposal, that is what I, you know, said in my proposal in 2010 when this grant was offered, that I was planning to do this work. And at the time, it was still in conceptual form. It was not at all uh, in any other form. And I described, you know, what I wanted to do. Um, and at the time of my proposal, it was only one one wall, but then because of the construction and we feared the walls falling, uh, you know, falling down, um, uh, I constructed two walls. So not only one 18 feet, another one 13 feet. And this, this work was shown there. It was shown in Austin, Texas, at the woman's uh, work, um, very famous um, gallery there. It was also shown in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then in Slippery Rock, where I taught. Uh, and in Florida, it was shown in two places, uh, one in Tampa and one in, um, then it arrived at the museum uh, in St. Petersburg. Wow. So it really had a long life. Yeah. And um, the, the work itself, and in every every installation, the work changes. It mm. just changes because the space again, the space changes. So the way the work is presented in that space also uh, is you know is influenced. So uh, most of your work seems to be a very large scale, um, and for the pieces that aren't exhibiting anywhere, where where do they live? Um, in my studio. 
<laughs> which is, which is now I have to find another air, another. Uh, I, I'm in fact investigating right now uh, another uh, place where I can store store my installation, so to speak. And luckily, I have a a gallery in St. Petersburg that are selling more traditionally scaled work for the for a for your a home, you know. <laughs> A lot of the work, in fact, that I produced while I was in Western Pennsylvania, um, in Slippery Rock, there isn't much of a, a, a you know call for my work, I must say. <laughs> and so, um, by the you know by farmers and you know the hardworking people of Western right. Pennsylvania, so. I think it's just all about rebranding because those soft walls—you just take that off, and that is a giant blanket. I mean, that's like a—that's a, yeah. you could totally sell that, that puppy. <laughs> like I'm, exactly. I'm like in love with it. Like I'm just looking at it. Funny. <laughs> People have said that they wanted to cuddle up in it. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. As we come to, as we bring this wonderful conversation to a close. We're just going to um, ask you one more very light question, or maybe it's not. I, you can you tell us how difficult it was for you to come up with the answer to this. But what are the three songs that you would say that describe your work? I just love that question. I love that <laughs> question because now the three I three composers, but three songs. You know, particular songs. Well. Let me just answer it this way, because I love the question, because this is what I listen to when I work in my studio. It is Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. Oh, oh yeah. My husband loves I that song. I'm crazy about his work. I mean, it just takes me somewhere that I have not been before. I believe that his work has a, it's a really compelling and a really interesting combination of spirituality, mm. how he can combine the spiritual and the sexual yeah, together right? in his work. <laughs> yeah. And it just takes me really into another area that's just wonderful. So it's him, it's Four Seasons by Vivaldi. Because obviously I love, you know, nature and the change of seasons. And also, you know, his work has appeal on so many levels. We hear it in ads. Right. We hear it in, you know, movies. It's tremendous appeal that, that he has. And um, I, I'm always in love with uh, the piano sonatas of Mozart. And the reason I love his work is it's delicate, yet it's so strong. I mean, it is so powerful. And Moonlight Sonata number five. It's like my same, favorite. Same. <laughs> Actually, I think we walked, my husband and I walked down the aisle to a jazzed up, like, kind of remix of that song. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. I love it. <laughs> so those are, those are, that's my answer about the music, and I just love that question. Oh, and I love your answers. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Akiko. This has been beyond delightful. Um, I, I've learned so much, and I'm, I'm happy to um, have made your acquaintance, and now I know so much about you and your works. I look forward to getting to see your pieces displayed in person over Contemporary Craft. 
as well as, you know, we encourage any and everybody who's, you know, if you're able to get on out to the gallery and go check out Akiko's work as well as many other glorious artists. Um, also, just give you a little time, Akiko, to tell folks where you can be found online or and or if you have anything coming up that you want to promote or talk about or, you know, anything like that. Oh, you mean right now? Yeah. <laughs> where can you be found on the interwebs? Or if you don't want to be found, that's that's cool too. No, 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 no. It's it's my it's my name dot com is my website. Okay. That's that's how people can find me. And also, I have uh, some work up currently until July at uh, the Baker Museum in Naples, Florida. Awesome. Florida Contemporary is the name of the show. Besides being at Contemporary Craft. Excellent.